This morning our epistle lesson comes from uh, the epistle to the Ephesians. We'll be reading chapter 3 verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to your word eager to be taught, to be led by your spirit. As we come to a dense, richly packed portion of your word, would you help us to see clearly the things you have hidden for us here, laid out for us here, that we would see clearly into the mystery, the plan for the ages that you have realized in Jesus Christ. Help us to see it. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. <clears throat> well, while our, pa our senior pastor, Chuck, has been on sabbatical, uh, we've been looking at the letter to the Ephesians, and we continue on in that series this morning. We've had a slew of guest preachers uh, and homegrown preachers, all of whom have been excellent and great, and I uh, hope I can carry us on in that. Um, but imagine with me for a minute... If next week we had a guest preacher up here and John Lawler stood up to introduce him, right? And he stood up and, of course, John, say, after adjusting his bow tie. <laughs> Friends, this morning we have the distinct privilege of welcoming Pastor Joe or whoever. He uh, did his uh, master's work at Reformed Theological Seminary in, in Orlando and got his Ph.D. from Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, he is a prominent pastor in our denomination, having pastored several significant churches. Uh, but most recently, after a brief stint in a maximum security prison, he's back filling pulpits all across the country. Right, that would be cause for concern. You might uh, grab your kids a little faster at the end of service and get to your cars. <laughs> And we're reminded this morning in Ephesians chapter 3 that when the Apostle Paul wrote this incredible, theologically rich, glorious letter to the Ephesians, 
he did so as a prisoner, a literal prisoner. And of course, as a speaker who wants his audience to value what he has to say, this would be cause for concern. This has to be addressed. Most significantly though, Paul's circumstance raises the question of whether our present situation can ever cast doubt on the gospel. In Ephesians chapters 1 and 2, Paul has laid out for us one of the most soaring visions of the plan of God, what God has done in Christ. But here, we're reminded of his own present circumstance, which seems to beg the question, how do these things match up? You know, I'm pretty good at standing. I could stand up here for hours as long as I don't lock my knees out. Some of our youth are probably nervous that I might actually do that this morning. I'm good at standing, but if you take me to the top of the lighthouse in St. Augustine, for example, or the 95th floor of the Hancock Tower in Chicago, standing becomes really hard for me. I'm one of those who has great fear of heights. Don't get me wrong, I love the view. But when I look down, such an ordinary task suddenly becomes incredibly difficult. Weakness overcomes me, I, I can't stand. And this morning it's as though we've seen this soaring glorious vision of what God has done in Christ in Ephesians chapters one and two, and then we look down and it's as if we're standing on the edge of a cliff. And this raises the question, this raises the question, how can these things match up with the gospel? How can the God who claims to be victorious in Christ, ruler over all of creation, in Christ, allow his servants to suffer like this? How can he allow his church to look the way it does? We go home and we're reminded of our present position and it raises the question, but friends, this morning Paul has a remedy for us, an answer in the midst of our doubts, an answer that leads him to say at the end of the passage, as he concludes what is really a digression in his argument, because he wants to address this, these, these causes for doubt. It leads him to say, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. Don't lose heart. So what is Paul's remedy? And Paul says that he has one, first of all, that he got from God. He says that this remedy was not something he arrived at by long pondering or serious reflection, but something that he received by revelation. Six times in verses two through eight, almost redundantly, Paul says that he was the recipient of a revelation from God. And this word revelation literally means an unveiling, that God disclosed something to him. He pulled back the curtains and gave Paul insight into what's really going on so that in his present circumstances where weakness would potentially overcome him, in our present circumstances where weakness creeps in, he reminds himself that he has 
insight into something from God, and he calls it the mystery, the mystery. And so this morning we have to explore the mystery of God that Paul has. He's received from God, and he passes on to us that for him is the remedy. If we look at it and lay hold of it, then there is a way through our present circumstances. First of all, this mystery is the mystery of Christ. It's the mystery of Christ. Paul uses different terminology to describe what this mystery is. But in verse 4, he says it's the mystery of Christ. In verse 8, he says he was granted this revelation of the mystery so that he could preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And at the end of the passage in verse 11, he says that all of this revelation of the mystery was according to the eternal purpose of God that he has realized in Jesus Christ. And so this mystery for Paul is not something cloudy or vague or hard to understand as we often use the word mystery. It is something crystal clear. And first and foremost, it is the person of Jesus Christ. In 1989, a man from Adamstown, Pennsylvania, who was sort of a collector of art in his own right, went to a local flea market and there he eyed a painting. It was, in his own words, as he reflected back on it, a dismal country landscape. The painting itself was terrible, but the frame looked nice. It was gilded and ornately carved. And so he bought the painting at the grand price of $4 and took it home to immediately disassemble the frame to discard or do away with this shoddy painting. And on the other side of the painting, he found a neatly folded piece of paper, a document. And as it turned out, he didn't know it at first, but he got the opinion of people who know about these things. That folded document happened to be printed on July 4th, 1776, as one of the 24 original copies of the United States Declaration of Independence. There were only 24 copies. In one expert's opinion, it was an unspeakably fresh copy. And this man, who as far as I could discover, still wants to remain anonymous, sold that document for a mere $2.4 million. <laughs> Don't you wish that you could find something like that? And here in this passage, Paul says that the mystery that has been disclosed to him is the mystery of the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. It is the mystery of what was hidden for ages in God. Paul has seen it and been overcome by it. He has seen as a good Jew, and not just as a good Jew, but as a scholar of Judaism, as a Pharisee, an expert, if ever there was one, on the Old Testament scriptures, on the plan of God, he was very familiar with them. But he has seen that he was missing something all along, that hidden in this plan laid out for God for ages was the promise of a person who would come. This isn't a promise that we only find at the back end of the Old Testament. 
Rather, it's a promise that was laid out in the third chapter of Scripture, hinted at there. That there was a coming offspring of Eve. One who would crush the head of evil. Later on, that there was a coming offspring of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That there was a coming prophet like Moses, greater than him, who would lead, lead God's people into faithfulness, where they had previously failed miserably. That there was a coming king, a son of David, better than all the others who would be faithful where they too had failed, leading God's people into peace, into the kingdom of God. There was a coming servant who would bear the sins of that people who had failed and bring to them peace with God. And Paul has found that it's Christ, it's Jesus, and he's been overcome by the person of Christ he is the one hidden for ages in God, Paul says. And in him are innumerable, immeasurable riches. Riches too many to number. And so he doesn't quite number them for us in this passage, but he does say something that's key to understanding this idea of having riches in Christ. I can still remember as a kid, I think with my mom going to the bank, like brick and mortar bank, we stand in the lobby, and I can still remember her explaining to me what was on the other side of that huge metal door with that, you know, handle that you turn. It was a vault. And that on the other side of that, people could store their most prized possessions. There are riches hidden in there. And again, while Paul doesn't lay out all the riches of Christ, he does tell us what is, as it were, the bank where the riches are found. Where he says in verse 12 that in this person, in Jesus Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We have access into the vault. What is that? He's already said in chapter 2, verses 18, or 17 and 18, that Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far off, that is the nations, the non-Israelites, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The innumerable riches of Christ can be summed up in this, that in him... We have access to God, boldness and confident access, in fact. And this imagery of boldness means that we can come to God without putting on airs. In another way, the whole story of the Old Testament can be told as the story of God's desiring to come and dwell with man, to make a way for his people to dwell with him, for him to be in covenant partnership with them as their God. And at the center of Israel's life is what? Literally, a temple, a tabernacle, a center of worship where in a very concrete way the presence of God is displayed. But that temple, friends, was divided up into three sections. 
you had the outer court where only Israelites could go. You had the holy place where only the priests could go to offer sacrifice. Then you had the holiest place, the inner court, where only the high priest could go, and that but once a year. And that but in a cloud of smoke, such that he could hardly see. Just enough time for him to go in and sprinkle blood on the ark, which was seen as the footstool of God, the place where heaven and earth met, where God's feet touched down to earth. Access to God. And yet, in the temple, we have a very real picture of our separation from him. And friends, Jesus Christ said, Paul says here about Jesus Christ that in him we all have access into the holy place. That's the bank where the riches are found. So for Paul in prison, he calls us to marvel at the mystery of Christ. Have you met him? Do you know him? Have you been overcome by his person? Do you see the access he's granted you? Marvel at the mystery of Christ. And secondly, Paul tells us to marvel at the mystery of Christ's church. Paul, on the face of it, of course, was in prison because he preached Christ and because he was the leader of this movement of those who had faith in Jesus. Those who were becoming the church, the people of God. This was a challenge to the established religion of Israel. Though Paul saw it as the fulfillment of it all, it was a challenge to the powers that be. And so Paul's in prison for the sake of the church, and so he reminds himself here and reminds us that the church, too, is a mystery to be marveled at. That the church is the place where the riches of God have been dispersed generously on us all. I don't know about you, but sometimes looking at the church, the church doesn't really seem all that marvelous. Recently, if you've paid any attention, there's been a slew of hideous reports about church leadership all across our country and the world that cast light on the church's character. More close to home, sometimes we show up at church and it just feels normal, mundane. In his book, Screw Tape Letters, where C.S. Lewis paints this allegorical picture of a senior uh, demon or tempter writing advice to a young tempter on how to tempt a Christian man, he says the church is one of our greatest allies. He says, make him, when he gets to church, dart back and forth in his mind between phrases like the body of Christ and the faces he sees around him in the pews. Make him hone in on the ordinariness of it all. Sometimes the church doesn't seem all that marvelous, but Paul tells us here that it is. Because it is here that Christ's riches are accessed and lavished upon us. 
Paul says, and in, 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 I think when we read this passage, the thing that may stand out to many of us the most is verse 10, that through the church, the manifold or the many-colored, multi-dimensional wisdom of God is now being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And, of course, we wonder, what in the world does that mean? What in the world is he talking about? And the question he's asking is, what's going on through this church that God has called into being in Christ? You know, in the ancient world, people believed in national gods. Each, god had, each nation had its god. And the way you could tell whether a nation's god was powerful and worth devotion and following was whether or not they had victory and proved themselves in battle over other nations. Paul doesn't exactly lay out the picture like that, but he does acknowledge spiritual beings created by God under his control that have a delegated rule over the human sphere, over the world. These are not eternal beings like God himself, but spiritual beings who hold sway, who influence and goad humanity and whole nations along deeper into their pride and rebellion against God. And Paul says here, that it's when the church gets together, when the gathering of saints happens, that God displays the incredible beauty, the manifold, multicolored wisdom that silences these hostile forces. <laughs> Friends, I don't know what you were thinking about when you showed up to church this morning who you were thinking about seeing or before whom you expected to be on display. But the Apostle Paul tells us that in Christ, God has revealed his wisdom to the spiritual rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, and he's doing it right here in the gathered people of God. So Paul's in prison. He's in prison, and he knows that the Ephesian Christians who were not Israelites. Their former life, we know from Acts 18, was bound up in worship of all sorts of gods and spiritual rulers and authorities. And they had rejected those things at no small cost to themselves, breaking ties with friends, social circles, leaving their entire religious life behind for Jesus Christ and yet they're seeing that the God whom Paul is preaching, in whom are supposedly hidden the riches of the ages, the mysterious plan in which all things hold together, that God seems to be losing. And yet Paul reminds his hearers that this God is not losing. He says, marvel at what God is doing in the church. And he tells us the last thing that we need to do. We need to marvel at Christ and at the church. But as the church, as those in Christ, we need to magnify our position. We're uncomfortable standing on the edge of a cliff. We're uncomfortable in our weakness 
And yet Paul tells us here, as the church of God, gathered up with access to God in Christ, magnify your position. Don't deny it. Paul here somehow says, not that, you know what, in spite of this, in spite of my present position, I still believe this because God revealed it to me. And I still believe it because it's really awesome that I have access into the presence of God in Christ. He doesn't just say that it's in spite of this, my weakness and my imprisonment, but that it is through this position that God's mysterious plan gets greater glory. That the reality of the church gathered up in Christ is the reality of men and women from different backgrounds, races, social circles, families being overwhelmed and overjoyed by the same thing, united by one confession of faith, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of God's riches. This proclamation, this foundation, levels all class distinction. It levels all the things that we elevate and that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places would encourage us to elevate as our sources of significance, as the things that we would point at and say, see, my tribe is winning. See, my God is victorious. Rather that it is in our weakness, in full acknowledgement of our need and in our suffering, that we point to what we have in Christ and magnify the riches that we find there. Friends, when you are tempted to lose heart, when you're tempted to call into question, when you go home today and find yourself confronted with your present circumstances, whatever they may be, does this really line up with all this glorious stuff that we read about in Ephesians 1 and 2? that we've just laid out, the mystery of God in Christ, does it really line up when you're tempted? Remember that it is in this position of weakness that God comes to us. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 2 about his mission, his message, that got him imprisoned. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory, None of the rulers of this age understood this, but these things God has revealed to us through his spirit. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. We receive these things as divine wisdom, that contradicts and upends our shaky foundations, the things that we would put pride in and find stability. We champion the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ that we all have access to him no matter where we're coming from. And friends, this morning, as we continue on in worship, we come to the Lord's table 
being reminded that we are one in Christ, that we have all of us equal access to the riches of God. So friends, come this morning, receive the wisdom of God in the midst of whatever circumstances cause you doubts. Let's ask him for help this morning to come to him. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we give you all the glory for what we have received. There is no other explanation for this mystery and our insight into it than that you have chosen to make it known to us. You have upended all the foolish wisdom by which we would live. And you have shown us Christ. You have shown us his riches. Would you help us, draw us to come confidently and to remain confidently in your presence this morning. And this morning we join our hearts together for all sorts of concerns, for all sorts of things that would cause us doubt, things that make us lose heart. We join our hearts together trusting you to make good on your promises, that through us your gospel goes forth in our weakness you are glorified. And so we pray together this morning for the advance of the gospel in our city and around the world. We pray for all of our missionaries here and abroad that you would grant all of them strength through your spirit to comprehend what are the immeasurable riches of Christ. And that in that they would be filled to overflowing for those to whom they minister, that they would impart the wisdom of God to them. And we pray for our church. We pray for Christ's church, that you would give us all, one and all, clear insight into the ways that we as your gathered people can better testify to our neighbors, and to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What is your wisdom on display in us? That you would give us insight into how we can build up and foster community here. That we can remain united on the basis of our faith in Christ. We pray for our pastor, Chuck, for his family as they're on sabbatical. Would you renew their strength as you give them rest, that they would return to us ready to serve, renewed in the spirit. Would you be with them? And Father, this morning, we also pray for the pain and suffering in our world. We pray especially for the victims of the shooting in Uvalde, Texas this past week. Would you bind up their wounds? Would you comfort them with your presence? Would you teach them? Would you give them insight into the coming day when Christ will return and put all things right? 
And we also pray for the sick and suffering in our midst here at Christ Church. For all those who are suffering in body and in mind. And also for those who are suffering loneliness and depression and anxiety. Would you be with them? Would you draw them deeper into the mystery of your son? Finally, we pray for the children and youth of Christ Church. We entrust them to you as we seek wisdom to guide and shepherd them. Would you give them your spirit that they would never remember a day apart from their Savior, Jesus Christ? And Father, in all these things, we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.